Good morning. It is a real privilege to be with you this morning. I always love opening God's word with you and just uh, always come just excited because I, um, I just believe so much in the power of scripture and uh, how it can transform. And I know God is working in, um, in the scriptures uh, as, we, as we meet together today. Let me pray as we open God's word. Lord, thank you so much for this part of your church. Um, thank you so much for how much you love us, how much you love this church, how much you love every member of uh, your church around the world. We're so grateful for your blessings on us. Lord, we're grateful for the chance to be together this morning in worship, uh, to share communion, uh, to open your word and learn from it. Lord, we know your spirit is present, and we ask that you help us to be receptive to your spirit as, as we read from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is kind of a, a fun and big Sunday for our family. Um, <clears throat> normally, uh, we sit up there, the Manning sit up in the balcony there. In fact, I've been sort of thinking recently about putting up a sign like Manning Memorial Balcony because we sort of take over the balcony and then charging uh, admission for everybody. So you guys, you know, just you're on, you're on warning. We're going to start charging admission for the Manning Memorial Balcony. Uh, but my wife likes to sit down here when I'm preaching. So uh, and we, you, if you were here before, you saw that one Manning got baptized today. That was really exciting. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and it's also... It's also uh, promotion week, so we had one Manning who moved up to big church today, and um, then we had one Manning move up to the high school, so now the Mannings make up 25% of the uh, high school youth group, so, and, uh, um, and I got promoted as well. I started receiving AARP letters in the mail recently, so... I was actually, I really gloated when I handed over one that was addressed to my wife, you know. Somehow she got one, although she's 10 years younger than me, so... Actually, she's not. She just looks like it. So, um, uh, well, do you remember being an outsider and becoming an insider? Or maybe, maybe worse, do you remember b- being in a setting where you were an outsider and you never became an insider? Um, uh, I think back to, I think for a lot of people, junior high is one of those places where you just were an outsider and you never felt like an insider. So for me, what happened... <clears throat> Uh, in seventh grade, um, I, had, I had been with the same group of kids through elementary school, had a lot of good friends, had this great elementary school experience. I had, I had nicknames, and they were good nicknames. It's like, oh, I like that nickname, you know? Um, <clears throat> they were nicknames that made sense back then in the 70s, like Gary the Gnu from Captain Kangaroo, yeah, and, and Encyclopedia Manning, that was another one of my nicknames. I like these, they were good nicknames, you know? Um, <clears throat> But then my family moved away for fifth and sixth grade, and uh, then I came back in seventh grade, and I was thinking, hey, I'm going to be in classes with all my friends, and I came back, and they weren't my friends, or at least I wasn't part of the in-group. Now, you have to understand, I grew up in Hawaii, so in my neighborhood, part of fitting in, especially if you're a white boy like me, is you speak pidgin. So it's kind of hard to hear pidgin spoken properly on TV shows, but every now and then they make an attempt. I decided to look up what this passage would sound like in pidgin. Um, so, for example, um, uh, Paul says, hey, you guys know what, all right? For be Israel citizens. That time, Christ was nothing to you guys. But now, you guys stay tight with Jesus because he went bust down the wall. Okay, I don't know if you understood any of that, but that's how we talked in my neighborhood, and that's how I fit in. So I went away for two years to Michigan and came back with a Michigan accent and didn't even know that I had switched accents. Now, if you're not familiar with a Michigan accent, it's vaguely Canadian, okay? Because Michiganders are mainly just Canadians who got lost and, you know, ended up in Michigan, (laughs) where I think it's colder. I don't know. uh, 
So I came back, and suddenly everybody's making fun of my accent, and I'm thinking, what accent? You know, when you're seventh, when you're seventh grade, you don't recognize how you're talking, you don't think about it, but I was so outside, and I was pretty miserable in seventh grade, and I never did fit in the whole year. In fact, I went, ended up in a different school uh, later on. <clears throat> So most of us have experienced that maybe at a, a job or maybe at a church you showed up and you just were an outsider. You just felt like I don't belong. And I don't know how to belong. I don't know what the code is to get in. But do you remember some times when, maybe when you became an insider? Maybe that time when somebody said, hey, I got an extra cup of coffee for you. And they hand you a cup of coffee. Hey, I'm an insider. Hey, come and sit with us. Hey, we're all going out to lunch. You want to come with us? Remember that feeling of suddenly being an insider? Uh, I remember coming here. We've, I, I was stunned to think that uh, this fall it will be nine years that our family has been coming here to Redemption Hill. So I remember uh, coming here, and it was, it was a new church, and I'm thinking it's going to take a while. And second week here, Alan Heldberg walks up to me and says, um, I want to fit you into the rotation for teaching in our Sunday school class. I said, okay, I guess I'm an insider now. <laughs> so... Um, <clears throat> It took us a while, Barbie, and it took us a while to go through the formal membership. I mean, we'd been here for, for several years before I actually got around to doing membership. And the week they were doing membership, and you know, with the faces come up here, I happened to be preaching that weekend. And I, I, guess, I guess I'm an insider here. I'm preaching. And, you know, <laughs> um, but we know that feeling of how good it feels to become an insider, and we know how awful it feels to be an outsider. I was thinking back. It's now been 30 years excuse me, it's been 30 years um, since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, and that's got to be the ultimate story of insiders and outsiders. Now, if you are younger than 30, to you it's just history, or maybe you've forgotten that Germany used to be two countries, East and West Germany, and they called themselves the Wessies, West, Westerners, and the Aussies, the Easterners. Okay, and they were different, different governments. Um, the Western, Western Germany um, was benefiting from all of the massive uh, growth and prosperity of the 20th century, growth in health care. Uh, the, the Germans were just, just going through all the wonderful things that were happening in places like America and England where, where new medical uh, technology was becoming available, and there was just a, a lot of growth in, in prosperity and in freedom. On the East, on the other hand, was this incredibly oppressive communist regime. To give you an idea of how different it was, if you were an Aussie, an Easterner, you were likely to be one or two inches shorter than your cousins, <clears throat> your actual cousins across the wall, because sometimes relatives were separated. Why would you be shorter? Because you didn't eat as well. You were likely to live anywhere from seven to 12 years shorter than a Wessie because medical care had not caught up and because you weren't eating as well. So you lived a shorter amount of time. You were experiencing way less freedom. Uh, it was a really oppressive communist regime in the East. And so because of this, a lot of people wanted to leave East Germany. And so what you remember from back before 1989 was a wall went up, a wall that separated Berlin and also all of Germany, a wall that went down the entire length of Germany. Now, this wasn't just like a wall you might put up in your backyard, okay, to keep out dogs or whatever. This was a wall, actually it was layers of walls with mines in between them. They laid a quarter of a million mines down the length of this wall to keep Easterners from leaving and going to the West. They had razor wire, they had trip wires attached to machine guns. Uh, the guards had orders to shoot anyone who tried to cross that zone. You weren't going to be arrested. You were going to be shot. When I was a kid, I always remember kind of the excitement when it would make it into the news that somebody got out. They were such amazing stories. There was one that just absolutely gripped me. Later on, they made it into a movie. This family 
made a hot air balloon. They, gra- they managed to get silk from all over the place. They made a hot air balloon in their basement, and they waited until the winds were going the right direction, and they went right over the wall. Another time, uh, there was a family. Um, there, was one, there, was, there were border crossings, and you could apply for a visa, but they would just say, no, no, you can't have a visa. You, know, you go to the visa office, and they just had a big stamp that said no. You know? um, there were border crossings, um, but they had these big bars so that you know, your car couldn't get through them. So this family, very clever, they took a car, and they designed it so that the, top, the whole top part of the car was removable. Okay, so they all got in the car and they started racing towards the barrier and right at the last minute before they're about to hit this huge, you know, like one ton bar, they all dropped their seats back and the entire top of the car got ripped off by the bar and they sailed underneath the bar. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, so, that, you know, every time this happened, the Germans would say, okay, you got to do something else. People would find a route through the old sewers that were was still there and then the Germans would go down and find, find a way to block that. This was a serious wall. This was something that really made a class of outsiders because everyone who lived in Eastern Europe had this, in Eastern Germany, had this just all these things against them to succeed. There, there, were so, there were so many difficulties that they had to overcome. Um, people were incredibly depressed living in Eastern Europe. And of course, what happened in 1989 was I was glued to the TV, watching as the wall came down. As Easterners began to flood over into the West, the wall actually was destroyed. It was, watching it, it was hard to even imagine, why aren't they shooting these people who are destroying the wall? We couldn't even comprehend how this was happening because it had been two generations of people who were stuck behind that wall. <clears throat> ultimate story of outsiders becoming insiders. And of course, now there's just Germany. There isn't two nations, two different nations living under different rules. And and actually, those people have caught up in lifespan and in height and in lots of other things, although there's still some differences between the two groups. That's what this passage is really about, uh, brought near in Christ. Um, This passage is talking about how far we were away from Christ before and how we came near. And this passage is going to show us how we got there and ask us to rest and acknowledge the blessings that we have gained in Christ. I want to just talk back up a little bit because of what we... um, Uh, just so you can see where we are in the book of Ephesians. So first week um, of Ephesians, Ken introduced us to this way of organizing Ephesians that really makes a lot of sense. Sit, walk, stand, okay? So the first three chapters or so of Ephesians are sit. Why sit? Well, back in chapter one, we find out that uh, Paul says one of the blessings we have as Christians is we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We've already been granted the status somehow, mysteriously, that we're already participating in Jesus' glory. Um, We participate in these blessings, and for the first three chapters, all we're supposed to think about is not what to do, but what Christ has done. It's already been granted to us. It doesn't start by saying, do these things. That's not where we start off with Ephesians. It says, here's what Christ has done. We want you to recognize and sit in what Christ has done for us. Then, the next few chapters are walk. What do we do? There are things that we are enabled to do once we understand the sit. Here's what's happened to us. Here's what Jesus has done for us. Therefore, we can walk in Christ. That's coming later, okay? And then the, le- the last chapter, mainly the last chapter, is stand, standing firm against Satan, standing firm against those things that would try to destroy us. So sit, walk, and stand. In chapter one, one of the things that Paul tells us, he says, you have been blessed 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that's another way to look at these first three chapters is here's a list of the blessings. You are so blessed. Back when I was young and obnoxious, now I'm old and obnoxious, but back when I was young and obnoxious, I, would, that, I loved that verse, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So whenever like, I'd sneeze and somebody would say, bless you, I would say, thank you, but I've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And they'd kind of stare at me, you know, um, okay, thanks. Uh, <laughs> um, but it, but I, I, I recited it partially because I love to remember that I already have it. Jesus, I've already been blessed with everything God has to give me. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So chapter two is listing the biggest blessings we have. So last week, Robert preached, and when Robert preached, he looked at this, wonder, this wonderful passage from, from verses one through 10, and it's the greatest rags to riches story ever, isn't it? You were dead in your sins, and you were enslaved to sin. But now, you're alive in Christ, and you're a servant of God. How did that happen? By the gracious gift of God. That was Pastor Robert's sermon in 30 seconds. I don't know why it took you 40 minutes, but you know. <laughs> this is from the guy who's going to take, I'm watching the clock, I'm going to take the whole 40 minutes. So. <laughs> By the way, I have to tell you, Robert, <clears throat> I normally type notes for the, service, for the sermons, and they go out to the small groups, and I always type the sermon title and then the name of the person preaching. I get tired of always typing... Uh, Pastor, uh, Pastor Robert Bishop. So sometimes I write other things to see if anybody's paying attention. So last week it was Pastor Robert the Bishop. Other weeks it's Bishop Pastor Robert or Bishop Robert Pastor. Nobody seems to notice, so now you're going to notice, those of you who received the emails, right? You're going to look and see what the name is there. So Robert the Bishop. I kind of like that one, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, back to Ephesians. <clears throat> we aren't in Ephesians yet. I'm taking too long. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> So, um, so that was last week. Incredible story. You were dead. Now you're alive. How did that happen? Jesus. Okay. This one, second verse, we used to, we used to sing annoying songs when we were on the way to camp when we were ki- kids, and we'd say, second verse, same as the first, only two times louder and two times worse. You guys still sing that? Okay. So th- th- this one is two times louder and, and twice as good. That doesn't rhyme, but that's okay. So this section is the same story. Here's where you were. Here's where you are. How did it happen? Jesus. It's an amazing story. It's the gospel, and it's a beautiful portrayal of the gospel. So we're going to start off with, um, before Christ, we were far off, and we were really missing out. We were far off and really missing out. Look at these opening verses in verse verse 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Before Christ, we were far off and we were missing out. You notice that he starts by saying, remember, okay? He wants us to remember when things were really bad. Um, <clears throat> I was, one of the things that I think was a blessing for me is as a young, young man when I was in high school and college, most of my Christian friends had been raised in non-Christian families and they had become Christians. They'd become Christians as teenagers. And um, that had a big impact on me because I, I grew up kind of, my earliest memories are being you know, dropped off in the nursery. <laughs> um, so for me to see what it was like for people who had been away from Christ, had been far away from Christ and then came near. And one of the phrases they would use is every now and then someone rem- would remind them of what they were like before they were Christians, and they'd say, oh, I, I don't want to talk about that. That was my BC days. 
My BC days, yeah, I did a lot of stuff and I don't want to be reminded of it. Right? We don't want to remember the sins we did. And that was, that was a good attitude. But here Paul says, I want you to remember. I want you to remember how bad it was. Maybe at the time you didn't even know how bad it was because when you're a non-believer before Christ, you don't even know what you're missing out on. But he says, I want you to think for a moment because if you remember how bad it was, you're going to have a greater appreciation of how great the salvation that Christ brought about is. Look at these before words in this passage. At one time, um, you were at that time. Um, you were. These words emphasizing the past. And, and uh, he says, you Gentiles. So the Ephesian Christians were mainly Gentiles. So in the first century, from a Jewish perspective, there are two races. The two races are you're Jewish, and there's everybody else, the Gentiles, right? In one sense, these are not so much just, they're not just about races, but they're about a status with God. When we see these words Jew and Gentile, we we might be tempted to think, okay, Paul's going to talk about race or racism. And this passage has some strong implications for race and racism, but that's not why Paul's writing. He's not talking so much about race, but about people of God and not the people of God. Because when you say Gentile, you're not so much thinking about your blood or your ancestry, but you're not the people of God. So he says, you, you Ephesians, you were Gentiles. Okay? You were not part of the people of God. And in fact, there was a mark that separated you because if you're Jewish, you're circumcised. And a circumcision is a mark that you're in the covenant. The males in the family are circumcised and that's a, a mark that you are part of Israel. Um, and so there was a clear distinguishing mark that says you, those people, Jewish people, they're in and you're out. And so right, right away we have a marker of inside and outside and if you're a Gentile, you're an outsider. Now, I want you to, we, we all have our non-Christian past, okay? But I want you to understand that it was a little bit different if you were a Gentile in the first century. So I want, I want to see if you could picture this. Imagine you live in a city like Ephesus and there are some, there's, this, there's, this, there's some synagogues, there's a Jewish section of the city and maybe you get interested. You think, I'm kind of, kind of interested in these people. Now you have your own gods. You probably have idols in your house. You have temples, pagan temples, you have pagan practices, but let's say you start to really admire the way your Jewish neighbors are conducting themselves, and you say, say, I want to visit the synagogue. You walk into the synagogue, and you're going to be allowed. Gentiles were allowed in, but let's say you say, you know, I'm thinking of becoming Jewish. I really like what, what you, I I like the way you guys behave, so what, what does it take to become a Jew? And a nice Jewish neighbor would say, well, uh, first, you have to get circumcised, Okay, now if you're an adult male, you'd probably say, uh, is there like another option? Can I just like sit in the back and enjoy the worship and listen to the message? Is there some other way we can do this, right? Uh, and, and actually, the good news, by the way, in the first century is that was an option. You could sit in the back and say, I'm not going to go the whole way, but at least I want to hear, you know. But and it wasn't just that. So you would, they, you might say, well, can I, can I at least sort of start to obey your rules? And they say, well, yeah, we have over 600 of them. You have to obey all of them. And think of those 600 rules. You're going to have to start shopping at a different market because you can't eat that food. You're going to have to change your diet. You're going to have to change your clothes because that's the Old Testament law included. Um, You're going to have to change your whole work cycle because only Jewish people had a seven-day work week with six days of work and one day off. And you're thinking, how am I going to do this? This doesn't fit my lifestyle at all. Um, You're going to have to follow all these rules. You're going to have to, if possible, make a trip to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice to kind of complete your entrance and have a a ritual bath. The, The barriers were so immense that you would feel like, 
I am always an outsider. It is too hard to become an insider. I cannot cross this wall. There's a wall in front of me. And so as a Gentile, you'd feel like, okay, I can come into the synagogue, but that's, I'm never going to be an insider. I cannot become Jewish. It's just too hard. Well, Paul says that's where you were. And that circumcision, he points out, look at the language there. He says, it was... uh, it's the circumcision, it's, it's, it's in the flesh, it's by human hands. What Paul is pointing out is it was just a human marker. The mark by itself wasn't meaningful. The mark by itself did not make someone Jewish. But on the other hand, it was a mark of being outside. You were not a member if you weren't circumcised. Paul lists then, here's all the, the deficits you had. Here's the things that you didn't have access to because you were a Gentile. Look at his list of things you're lacking. First, you're without Christ. There's a list of five withouts. Without Christ. Um, if you visited a synagogue there before Jesus came, you would hear about the Messiah. Jewish people are expecting the Messiah, but he's a Jewish Messiah. He's somebody who's coming to rescue the Jews. And so again, you'd feel like, well, that's not for me. I'm a Gentile. I'm not a Jew. The Messiah is not for me. They were without citizenship. He says you were, they were alienated from the common, I'm in verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth is a citizenship word. So you see, when we think about Israel, it's not just a um, it's not, we're not talking about just a physical distinction. So to become, a, uh, in the first century, to become a citizen of Israel meant to become a follower of God. In fact, when people converted from being Gentiles to Jews, they were almost treated as if they had immigrated to a new nation. They were, they were treated as so different from their past. And he says, you didn't have that. You didn't have citizenship in Israel. You were an alien. You were a foreigner. So you were without citizenship. They may have had citizenship somewhere else, but they didn't have citizenship in the group that mattered, in the people of God. They were without the covenants. You and I, before Christ, didn't have the covenants. A, a, a quick summary of a covenant is a, is a formalized relationship, usually with promises. So, of course, Israel had multiple covenants. God made a covenant, a formalized relationship with promises, with Abraham, promising them blessings, promising that they would be a blessing to the world, promising them the land, and then to successive generations and ultimately leading to the, the, the covenant given through Moses where God said, I'm going to protect you and bless you and you keep the law. That's the arrangement we have. But, you, but if you're a Gentile, you could hear about those covenants and say, but it's not for me. I don't get to be part of that. That promise was not made to me. It was made to the nation of Israel and I'm not an Israelite. I'm not a Jew, so I'm an outsider not only without the covenants, but without hope. Now, I might have, everybody has hopes, but the hope we're talking about here is something more than just what I hope will happen next week or my dreams for my kids or my, you know, my future. Gentiles did not have a hope. You and I, before we were Christians, did not have a genuine hope in our future. You see, a Jew, even before Jesus showed up, could say, the Bible has promised me that there will be a resurrection someday and I will stand before God in judgment and be rewarded if I've been faithful to him. They could say that and say, I am confident, I have hope of what God will do. But a Gentile would say, I'm not so sure that's for me. I don't have a hope. I, I, that's not my religion. That's not, so I, I don't have a hope. Now again, this is, they might not have known this. Paul is saying, this is where you were. Whether you realized it or not, you didn't have hope. And finally, you were without God. A Gentile might say, well, yeah, I've got gods. I've got lots of gods. In fact, I'm better than you because you only have one and I have lots, right? But what Paul is saying is you didn't have a real God. You may have had idols in your kitchen and idols at your door and you may have had idols in a, in a temple, but you didn't have the real God. 
So before you came to Christ, you had a lot of stuff missing. You were, you were strangers, you were far away, and you were missing out tremendously. Now, we're in a little bit different situation because we don't have that, that quite that same societal setup, but all of us were in the same boat where we were once apart from Christ. We didn't have citizenship in God's people. We didn't have God's promises. We didn't have hope, and we didn't have God. What was that like for you? Do you remember back to what it was like before you met Christ to your BC days? Now, for me, I was pretty young. Uh, I'm just really blessed to have um, trusted in Christ at a young age. So my BC days mainly involved being part of the big wheel gang, wearing plastic chains around my neck in the neighborhood. Some of you are too young to know your thing. Big wheel, what's that? So a big wheel, if you're too young, uh, was basically back in the 1970s was a tricycle that if it was produced today would result in lots of lawsuits for consumer product safety problems. Uh, my wheel, my, the big wheel would fall off my big wheel, leading me to tumble into the, the asphalt. <clears throat> um, um, yeah, so you know, I didn't have this terribly sinful past, and maybe that's, maybe that's you as well. You think, well, I, I had a good life before I was a Christian. Nonetheless, no matter how good it was before you came to Christ, no matter how bad it was, we were in the same boat, or actually a better way to say it is we were out of the boat. We didn't have access to God's promises. We didn't have Christ. We didn't have citizenship with God's people. We were cut off from God and from his people, no matter how good or no matter, no matter how bad it was. So here's the good news. After Christ, because of Christ, we were brought near to God and to his people. Look at verse 13, wonderful expression of the gospel. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the gospel. You were, you are, how'd you get there? Because of Christ, because of the blood of Christ. That's what got us there. Notice what happened is all of those withouts, all of those deficits we had without Christ, without God, without citizenship and the people of God, without God's promises, without hope, all those things, those were, we were without those things, but we were brought near. We gained access to all those things. We, we were brought into the people of God and into access uh, to God. <clears throat> it's that moment when somebody, like I talked about earlier, somebody says, hey, do you want to sit down with me? Do you want to have dinner with me? you're welcome here. It's when you walk up to someone's door and they say, hey, it's not a stranger, it's you. Come on in. Come, stay for dinner. We'll set an extra plate. You know that feeling of being inside. Um, I remember some of our uh, greatest years of, of uh, having a small group ministry uh, in our home. Um, you know, we would have everybody start showing up for dinner and a whole bunch of people, all with kids, and our, our house would just sort of be overrun with people and kids and we'd send the kids upstairs and everybody would bring, bring food and we'd have a meal together because we were all insiders. And if somebody showed up, it wasn't like, who are, somebody showed up knocking on our door. Well, they, didn't, they actually didn't knock anymore because they were such insiders, they just walked in. Um, that's the picture of what happens to us afterwards. We are not just inside with God, but we're inside with the people of God. There's a transformation in our status so that we were far away and we come near. Now, that language of you were far, but now you're near, that was familiar language back then. This actually was language that was used by Jewish people to describe Gentiles who made that big step. So some Gentiles would come into the synagogue and say, yep, I really want this. Yep, I will get circumcised and I'll, I'm going to keep all 613 laws. I'm going to do it. And so they would convert and become Jews. And that was actually described as somebody who was far coming near. So this is language of conversion, of switching to a new religion. But Paul doesn't mean 
becoming Jewish here. He means something actually bigger than even that huge transition. We're going to see that in the next few verses. Um, at this point, Paul wants to talk about how. First, first part of the chapter was you were dead, now you're alive because of Jesus, right? That's what's happening in this one as well. Let's look at how it happened. <clears throat> so we had uh, by the blood of Christ, but now look at what else he says about how this happened. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down <clears throat> in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. So how did this happen? Jesus brought peace between these two hostile groups he brought peace by killing the wall. What a weird picture. We normally think of tearing down the wall. He killed that wall that was separating us. Jesus brought peace by killing this hostile barrier of the wall and forming a new people. Notice how Jesus is described. It says, he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. The word peace is mentioned four times in this passage. Why so important? Because, because before we were outsiders, we were enemies, we were hostile. But now, because Jesus is our peace, we can become insiders. In fact, uh, Jesus is our peace is a quote from a well-known passage in, in Micah where Jesus is described as the shepherd who will rise from Bethlehem. And it says, he is our peace. And the way he's described as our peace in Micah 5 is by destroying the enemy. Sometimes peace comes about by destroying your worst enemy, right? I need to have a Lord of the Rings reference in every sermon, but this one will take too long, so I'll just tell you, for those Lord of the Rings fans, look up Theoden talking to Saruman saying, we will have peace, okay? Lord of the Rings fans, you probably already know what I'm talking about, but I gotta move on because I'll run out of time here. So, okay, there's my Lord of the Rings reference point. Okay. Um, <clears throat> um, so Jesus became our peace. He's the prince of peace and he became our peace by breaking something, by destroying something. Look at what he destroyed. He destroyed the wall of the law through his death. Now Jewish people sometimes described the law as a wall and they meant it in a positive sense. They said there's a wall around us that's protecting us and it's the law. But if you're a Gentile, what does that wall look like? Not a protective wall. It looks like a wall that is keeping you out. In fact, it is a wall that's keeping you out. Jesus said the problem here is not just that people are sinners. That's how we normally explain the gospel is people are sinners, they need forgiveness. That's totally true. But in this passage, he says the problem is that wall cannot be climbed. There is no way to get over that wall. Now notice something Jesus does not do. He doesn't say, you know, I'm gonna make a new route through that wall. I'm gonna give you a ladder. I'm going to tunnel underneath it like the East Germans used to do before the wall came down. Uh, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy the wall. The wall is coming down. Jesus destroys this. He says it's the, the barrier that's hostility. It's enmity. And Jesus is going to kill that wall. He did kill that wall. We think of Jesus being killed on the cross, and he was. But as he was being killed, he killed the wall that separated you and me, that kept us out from God's people. He destroyed this wall that that made it impossible for an outsider to become an insider. Now, whenever we talk, whenever the New Testament talks about this idea of the wall being, of the law 
uh, somehow ending. Lots of different language like that throughout the New Testament. It can be confusing. Sometimes people think, okay, that means uh, we don't have to obey anything anymore. There's no moral laws. We can do whatever we want, right? That's not what he's saying here. In fact, remember how Ephesians works. This section doesn't tell us what to do. It just tells us what Jesus has done. But then it's going to tell us a lot of stuff to do starting in chapter 4. So there are things that we do, but we do them not to get in, but because we're in. Do you see the difference there? If you were a Gentile and you looked at that wall, you'd said, wow, 613 laws plus circumcision. It's too big. I can't do it. I cannot get in. Jesus tears down the wall and says, come on in. Now that you're in, here's what I want you to do. And here's what I'm empowering you to do. There's a huge difference between moral guidelines that, that, are, that Jesus gives us for us to be more like him and rules that keep us out. You see the difference there? So when Jesus destroys the law, he's not destroying morality, but he's destroying this set of rules that kept us outside, that kept us from becoming part of God's people. Through Jesus' death, the law, this wall of the law is destroyed. I was thinking back again to watching on the news when the, the wall between East and West Germany came down. It's actually kind of funny if you, uh, at the time we, in the West, we didn't know what was going on. It was very confusing. Uh, but after we found out something happened, uh, the East German government was trying to just lessen up a little bit. And so they said, before, when you went into the visa office, they would just stamp no, pretty much. Um, unless you, there was a death in your family across the wall, you could not get through. Well, there were mass demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations saying, no, we want the right to leave. We don't want to live in a prison country. And so the East German government said, okay, we need to lighten up a little bit. There's, there's like hundreds of thousands of people gathered around the government building protesting. And they were all singing hymns, by the way, which had been, been banned for 40 years. Um, <clears throat> so I tell you what, so the, the minister of the interior got on, the, the, on television and said, okay, we're going we're gonna to open up the visa offices uh, and we're now going to let you go out. You can just come, to the, you can come and get your visa. And the reporter said, uh, when will this start? And he said, right now. Now, what everybody heard is, as they watched this broadcast, they heard things are going to change right now. So literally hundreds of thousands of people right then started to walk towards the border, not towards the visa office. They just started to walk towards the border crossing. So they got there and you got, you know, say a dozen soldiers standing at a border crossing. And there's a crowd of 100,000 people walking towards them saying, he just said on the news, we can leave. <laughs> and these guards are frantically on the radio trying to get some advice. And they're thinking, we can't hold off 100,000 people trying to push through. So finally, at several crossings, the captain in charge of the crossing just said, um, this isn't going to work. Let's just open the gate. And people flooded through. And of course, in the West, people are thinking, what is going on? Everybody used to get shot when they tried to cross here. They're just flooding across. The East German idea is let's just open up a few holes and let people out, loosen up the visa thing. You remember what happened next when those hundreds of thousands of people came out. They turned around and looked at the wall and said, that thing has to go. And they, with their hands, they tore it to pieces. The one that went through Berlin, you had, it, it was amazing to see on video. It just... 100 people would get up and rock a giant cement wall, rock it back and forth until it tumbled down. They destroyed the wall that separated the two countries. And within one year, they became one country. It was stunning uh, from a historical perspective. Nothing like that has, has happened before except here in the Bible. See, Jesus said, I tore down the wall to make a new group. I tore down the wall that separated us. Notice what else Jesus did. He said, I made a new people. Paul switches in verse 14. He had been saying, you guys were outsiders, because Paul's Jewish. You were outside, 
But in verse 14, he says, he himself is our peace. Jesus made the two, me and you, into one. Paul says it wasn't, we thought we were the insiders and you were the outsiders, but we found out that everyone is an outsider until Jesus opens up the way in. He made a new people. Notice he says in verse, um, uh, he made, uh, sorry, I lost my place there. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So Jewish people might, might have thought, okay, we're gonna now let Gentiles in. Jesus says, and Paul says, no, we're making a new group and you're both welcome. But the new group is not defined by that wall anymore because the wall's gone. The new group is now all who follow Jesus. All are welcome into the new group. Both Jew and Gentile are, wake, are uh, welcome into the new group. Jesus made a new people group. Both those who are far, the Gentiles, and those who are near now have access, not only to this new group, but it says that Jesus gave access to the Father. Um, <clears throat> he reconciled us both to God, and he made access to God. So that was a pretty stunning change. We were far away and now we're near and look at what Jesus did to get us there. He destroyed, in his own death, he destroyed the wall. He made a new people. He gave a new access to God. What does it look like now? And that's where Paul ends the passage. He says, okay, now there's this new group. What does it look like now? This new group we now call the church. Look at verses 19 through 22. So then, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Have you ever gone through a phase in your life where you felt like the church church was a wreck? Ever been in a church that split? It's nasty, isn't it? Sometimes maybe even just a Bible study might go through a difficult time, and sometimes you feel like, I am sick of the church. We've been so blessed to have been here almost nine years, and I've never felt that way here, but I have in the past gone through times when I think, I don't want to show up. I'm an elder there, so I have to show up, <laughs> but I don't want to. Um, I've, I've gone, and most, if you've been in the church long enough, you've gone through those times and you think the church is a wreck, the church is a mess. But Paul is saying, let me give you the real truth about what happened when Jesus formed this new group. The new group that you and I are a part of, here's the after picture, the before we were enemies and aliens, we were outsiders. Let me talk about how inside we were. Look at what he said. You're no longer alienated. You weren't a citizen. Now you're fellow citizens with the saints. Saints is the holy ones, the people of God. We're part of that group. We're fellow citizens. We're God's family members. Wow. We were so far away and now we're part of his family. But he wants to take it one more step further and it's kind of a crazy metaphor. You were so far outside, but now you're part of the building. Back then, if you were a Gentile and you walked into the temple, there was a certain wall there and there was a sign up that said, if you're an alien, a stranger, not a Jew, and you walk past this wall, you are responsible for your coming death. You would be executed without trial. You could, if you were brought in, you could be killed on the spot, and it actually did happen. This is why Paul was almost killed, as they thought he had brought a Gentile in. Um, <clears throat> that's going to make you feel like an outsider. <laughs> um, but now, Paul says, not only are you an insider, that temple that excluded you, you are bricks in the wall of the new temple. This building is wonderful. We all know that it's not the church, right? We're the church. The picture that Paul has here, he says, you and you, every one of us, is a brick 
in the wall. And it's a kind of weird building because the building is growing. Not being built, it's growing like an organism. It's growing bigger and bigger and it's growing in holiness. So it's growing into the, and what's the purpose of this building? Every building has a purpose. It's the dwelling place of God. When the church looks messy, remember this picture that you and I are bricks in the, the wall of a building that houses God himself. And the picture here, he says, growing together, which is like the bricks linking arms. When I was a kid in Hawaii, our houses were filled with termites. I was just part of growing up in Hawaii. And sometimes people would say, the house is only holding together because the termites are holding hands. <laughs> Although if, they, if they let go, it's going to fall apart. That's what it is for you and I. This, the church, us, is holding together because we are gripping each other. We bricks are hanging on to each other. So the picture of the church here is you were so outside, but now you're a brick in the wall that houses God. And this building is growing up. It's built on the apostles. It's built on Jesus. And it's growing in holiness. I want you to three things to take out of this. First, remember. Remember how far outside you were and how much inside you are now. Remember that because it causes you to be thankful. Don't just remember it once or twice. Keep on remembering. Whenever you're feeling like, ah, my Christian life isn't so great, remember where you were and where you are. Thank God for the great thing he did. Look at what it cost him. He killed the wall, but how did he kill it? Through the death, through his own death. Jesus killed the wall through his own death. So we need to remember where we came from. Thank God for what he did to get us there. And then join. You are already a brick in the wall, so join be a part of the bricks around you. You might feel like an outsider here. You're not. Don't let anyone make you feel that way. You might be making somebody else feel like an outsider. If, they are, if that person's a believer, they are not an outsider. They are another brick in the wall, and we need to consciously join. Now, I'm not going to lay that out, because that's what chap- chapter 4 talks about. What does it look like to be a brick in the wall? What does it look like to join with other believers in being the building that houses God? Remember where you came from, thank God for what he did to get you here, and consciously join the people of God. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Uh, We do remember, we do remember that we were alienated, separate from you, and now we join with other believers, and we have access to you because of what Jesus did, and we're so thankful for what Jesus did to bring us from far off to near. We're so thankful that we get to be part of your church, part of your body. Lord, help us to be thankful. Help us to consciously join. Help us to um, always uh, participate in this recognizing the great work you've done in bringing us together. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.